Father, we are so thankful for your love for us and for your kindness and your mercy. We're thankful for your son, Jesus, who willingly came and bore our sins in his body on the cross and died and rose from the dead. And Father, we're so thankful that you revealed him through your word and that you grow us in respect to salvation through your word. We're so thankful for that. And Father, I pray you would do so this morning, that you would, uh, for those who don't know you, work in their hearts, that they might see their true need of a Savior from their sins and turn to Christ. And Lord, for those of us who do, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son, that we would take to heart what you say through your word and be changed. So we thank you for this morning. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what do you think of when you think of the good life? Uh, Some see the good life as relaxation, the good life as vacations. Some see it as accomplishments. Some see it as family time. Some see it as, or actually many see it as having enough money to do as you please. What do you think of when you think of the good life? You know, it's, it's... it's needless to say, but if you were to ask probably any non-believer if they wanted to live a good life, they'd say, yeah. Would you like the good life? They'd say, yeah. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Do you want to live the good life on earth? And I'm not speaking of how the world looks at it, but from how God reveals it is. With that in mind, for believers, how can we live the good life And the answer to this question may surprise you, as we're going to see uh, in Psalm 34. Who is it, who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Who wants that? Who wants that? Today we're going to see how we can live the good life from God's point of view, by walking in the context of a true blessed relationship with him. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12, excuse me. 1 Peter 3. Now, the context of 1 Peter, we've been going through the book. We have the reality that Peter is writing to aliens. They are sojourners. They are, there. He reveals that believers on this earth, this is not our home. We are temporary residents. And these uh, in Asia Minor were suffering, and they were about to uh, suffer a very, uh, a very uh, uh, fiery ordeal in terms of persecution and suffering. And Peter is reminding them, obviously, that uh, this is not our home. But also within it, he is reminding them who they are in Christ and what Christ has done for them and what Christ is doing and how that applies to our relationships now as we temporarily sojourn on this earth. He's made it clear that we as believers are blessed Uh, because by God's great blessing, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and we are going to obtain an incredible eternal inheritance. We have a salvation reserved for us, and, and we're looking forward to Christ coming again. And God is using his word as he did when we first were saved to to bring us into the family. And he is growing us in respect to salvation. He's building up this wonderful holy temple uh, to offer his him spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing. And then we came in chapter 2 to the application of the book. 
the application, uh, first application was that we were to be turning away from, we were to, as aliens and sojourners, chapter 2, verse 11, staying far away from fleshly lusts which wage war with our souls. And then Peter gave some specifics concerning uh, how we are to respond in the midst of ordered relationships that we might suffer in, and indeed that these believers were suffering in. He said in uh, chapter 2, in the middle of that chapter, that we are to be keeping our behavior excellent among Gentiles. That's non-believers. And the reason was that God might open a door for redemptive opportunities as they observe and slander you for your good deeds that they might glorify God in the day of visitation, the day he visits them in, in conviction and the truth of the gospel and their need for a Savior, Jesus Christ. And we saw that we are to submit to all the governing authorities. We are to uh, honor all men. And within the slave-master relationship, which was really mirrors our work relationship now, there was to be submission even to the hostile, harsh bosses because it finds favor in God's sight if we suffer for doing what is right and we endure it with patience. And within that, he moved to the perfect example of, of, of our, for us, which is Jesus Christ in whom God used his suffering and his response, righteous response, to bring about our redemption. He, he bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to God. He is our perfect example. He is our tracing pattern. And we as believers have been called to, to follow in his footsteps in this manner as God would allow us to suffer, but use, the, use our response to suffering as a venue to bring about opportunities to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's very interesting. Many people want to say, say you know, I, I want to prepare and be ready to share my hope, but they don't realize that the venue God uses most often here, at least we see in here, is our response, godly response to the situations that God allows in our lives, that our good deeds would shine before the world. If you look in Matthew chapter 5, he talks about being persecuted, and then he says, let your light shine. The reality is the character of Christ shines the brightest when we are responding to those things that in our own flesh we could never respond that way, but Christ responds through us. So we saw within that then in the same way how believing wives are to, uh, to function, adorning their hearts uh, with uh, the, the, the characteristics of Christ, uh, submitting in obedience to the Lord and, and fearing not man or, or spouses, but fearing God actually evidencing their children of Sarah of the faith and men that we are to live with our wives according to knowledge, biblical truth. We should understand uh, how God made our wives and, and, their, and the things that he says about them and we need to honor them because they are equal to us as fellow heirs of the joint, uh, joint heirs of the grace of life that our prayers would not be hindered. A very serious thing. Your relationship with God is strained. Our relationship with God is strained when we are in sin. And God makes it very clear in that situation. And from this point, we come to a summary, in a sense, of of how we are to respond, not simply in relationships, but how we are to respond in the midst of suffering, as we will see. And it's very interesting how Peter lays this forth, inspired by the Spirit. And I believe we're going to see how we can live the good life on this earth as we walk in the context of God's true blessing. There's a lot of talk about blessing out in the Christian community, but we want to see what that really means. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. To sum up, 
Let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. For let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is a tremendous passage, and it doesn't end here. It continues on in chapter 3, and we don't have time to go through that other portion there. But I'm going to allude to what uh, is said after our portion. We'll look at that, Lord willing, at another time. So I want to point out the immediate overall context of this passage as we look at it. First of all, Peter, after sharing five elements of what our heart attitude should be towards one another, verse 8, he begins to reveal in verse 9 how our behavior is to be towards unbelievers who cause us to suffer when we're doing what is right. This is in context. And from this point, in the end of verse 9, he points out that we were called for this very purpose. Well, we'll see in a minute. The purpose is to respond rightly in the midst of suffering that we would inherit a blessing. And we'll see what that means. And then in verses 10 to 12, he explains what that blessing is in context using Psalm 34. So today, in this context, we're going to see that we were called to suffer for doing what is right. And when we do so, God's blessing is upon us. We inherit us. We will see a blessing. We are blessed. And it is an evidence that we are walking rightly with the Lord. So with this in mind, before we get to our passage, I want to show how this idea of walking rightly in the midst of suffering relates to God's blessing upon us. And we'll see this later on as we move through our passage. Uh, look at, uh, at uh, chapter 2, verse 19. Peter says, For this finds favor, for if the sake of conscience towards God, this is a, a, an awareness of God wanting to obey him, trusting him, relying on him, A man bears up under sorrows when what? Suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. There's favor with God when we, from our right heart, respond in obedience to the circumstances that come around us. There's a favor at, in, this, in this life at this time. There are certainly eternal rewards, but there is a favor now, as we'll see later on. It is his blessing upon our lives, as we will say. He says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Now go just right after, or at the end of our passage, chapter 3, verse 12. And this moves on past, and I wish we could teach this, but I want to show you it's all connected. Chapter 3, verse 12. And then we'll get to the passage and explain all this context that I'm showing you right now. Chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. We're going to see that's a blessing. It's a blessing to have God's ear attentive to your prayer and his eyes watching over you. What a blessing that is. And that's current, present tense, as you're you're trusting and obeying him. And then he says here, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then look at verse 13, which we can't get to today, but it's connected. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, what does it say? You are blessed. 
we're going to see we've been called uh, to suffer in this manner and ultimately through that inherit a blessing or as we will see, be blessed by God. As you go on, he says, and do not fear their intimidation or be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the very thing you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior, notice it's the right behavior in Christ, it's not from your own self, it's not like the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, or or hypocrites, it's relying on Christ, may be put to shame. For it is better if God should will so you suffer for doing what is right rather than wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. God is using our right response in suffering, just like he did with Christ. That's the theme that's running through this book. And when we respond like Christ did, God's blessing is upon us. When we follow in his footsteps, trusting in him. And then one last passage. Look in uh, chapter 4, verse 13. I'm talking a lot about blessing and behavior and suffering. Then we're going to get to our passage, which will help explain it, I believe. Chapter 4, verse 13. But to the degree that you share... Verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13. To the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, what does it say? You are blessed because the Spirit of God and glory rests upon you. It's an evidence you're truly walking with the Lord. You're walking in a blessed relationship and His behavior through you is causing non-believers to revile you. His blessing is upon you. We're going to see that in this passage. His favor, His ear attentive to your prayer, His protection, His genuine hope, participating in His redemptive plan. This is blessing a walk, a right walk with him because the spirit of God, a glory and God rests upon you. So then, with that introduction to the context in mind, how do we, how is it this blessing rests on believers? How can we live the good life? I believe we're going to see we can live a life characterized by God's blessing upon us through two specific things. First of all, we need to live according to biblical knowledge. We need to live according to what God says in his word. Look at verse 8 here. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. These are great to memorize, by the way. Because when we memorize these five things in our walk, when we're around other believers, we think, oh, am I this way? Am I this way? Lord, help me. Right? If we don't know this verse, we're not going to be this way. We need to trust the Lord. We need to have his word in our hearts. And he says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. We're going to see there's something we should do with those who are not saved, and there are things that we should do with those who are saved. And uh, notice here in in, in this verse, we have basically two areas. There's two areas. One, as we're going to see, verse 8 is towards believers. There's no way we can be harmonious or literally same-minded with non-believers. It's accepted clearly from the context that the verse 8 is our behavior around believers. And verse 9 is our behavior around those who are specifically persecuting us for doing what is right. And it's interesting that the Apostle Peter begins with our behavior around believers. 
Because I believe there's no way that we can respond rightly to those persecuting us, walk rightly before the Lord, unless our walk is right with believers around us. And I think that's why he shares this. So we have here the first phrase, to sum up. Some translations say finally, and that's true. He's giving his final instruction in relationship to what he has just shared. How we are to behave in the context of those who do not know Christ, and then within those order relationships. Now this summary goes on pretty long. We're going to see it and be in it for a long time, but this is where it begins. I want you to make some other uh, observations here about this portion. First of all, uh, verse 8 is actually about believers. But we're going to also see in verse 8 that it has to do completely with heart attitudes. Heart attitudes. Every portion there is a heart attitude. He's not telling you to do stuff. It's that our heart should be a certain way which will manifest behavior around other believers. You see, apart from having a right heart, we can't do what the Lord wants us to do. If our hearts are not right towards believers, how can our heart respond rightly towards those who are persecuting us? It's not, it's not going to happen. We need to be walking with the Lord. It's directed towards believers. Verse 9 is directed towards non-believers. So right here we see uh, a few of these things. Now, shouldn't our heart attitude be right towards non-believers? Yes, it should be, but there is a different uh, heart attitude we have towards those who are in the body of Christ, and we're going to see that. So he begins, to sum up, let all be harmonious. Now, harmonious may not be the best translation, but it does describe one element of what uh, Peter is trying to share. And if you know things about languages and translations between languages, sometimes one word in, in one language has, a, has, a, has a, a pretty large width of meaning that you can't just take one word in another language and say that equals over. Here, yes, it does include the idea of being harmonious, but I think it's more than that, and I'll tell you why. The word translated harmonious here is homo phronis. Phronis means thinking or mind. Homo means same. It literally means same thinking, same mind, same mind. And if you look at the very last one, it says lowly in spirit. It's actually a word that speaks of low and then phronis, low in mind. Low in mind. So here we are to be same-minded. That is the basis for all of these things, all of these attitudes. The basis for our attitudes towards one another is to be same-minded. So this brings up the question, how can we be thinking the same thoughts? How can we who are so different have the same mind? How can we do that? Well, we're going to see because we have the Spirit of God and Christ in us, we are able to, when we submit to Him, allow His Word to control our thinking and actions, and we will be same-minded. Look at what Bob read earlier in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ and, and the way it's written in Greek, yes, there is. If there's any consolation of love, and yes, there is. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and yes, there is. This is for believers. If there is any affection and compassion, yes, there is. Make my joy complete by what? Being of the same mind. Same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. There we go. We have these two things, don't we? 
Humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5, have this literally phreneo mind. Yeah, and it's translated attitude because our thinking and our, it's really our attitudes. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think like Christ. Think like Christ. So how is it that we can have the same mind and think like Christ? We who are so different in so many ways. Again, Philippians 2.5 has the answer. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think like Christ. We need the mind of Christ. That's how it happens. Now, how do we get that? How do we think like Christ? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is... Uh, Reproving the Corinthian church that was boasting and all kinds of stuff. They were boasting in, in people, in ministry, whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Paul and Apollos are good guys, but we don't boast in people. We don't elevate people. Let, if anyone boasts, let him boast in the Lord. And the Apostle Paul is going to share, hey, how I came to you is not worthy of boasting. It was all God through his word that did it. And that's what he's going to share in 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I wasn't a super slick wordsmith with God's word. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. I didn't have a slick, persuasive sermon. Persuasive words of wisdom, he says here, but in demonstration of the Spirit and in power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Hey, we don't, we, don't, we don't trust God because a man convinced us through a slick sermon to do so. It's God's power, as we'll see through the Word of God, and our faith is then in God. He says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature or complete, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before our, the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, the things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man. These things are completely from God. Man never could have thought of it. He says, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Guess what? He's given it to us. He's revealed it. For God has revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among the men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of the man, of a man, the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. We as believers have received the Spirit of God that we might know in context God's Word that is freely given to us. He says, which things we also speak. These are the things we spoke, not persuasive worldly wisdom, but God's Word. We all, not in words of, by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But the natural man, that's a non-believer, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them for they, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known what God is thinking? He says that he should instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the truth from, of Christ, the word of God. Not everything, but we have what God wants us to know. We have his truth. We have the mind of Christ. It has been freely revealed to us. So how we are of the same mind is we make a deliberate choice to renew our minds with God's truth rather than our thinking, our understanding, our wisdom. We are to not be conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are to set our minds on the things above, Colossians 3, not the things of earth. We are to focus on those things. We are to, to think like Christ would think. And the only way we can do that is to have his word dwelling richly in our hearts. You cannot obey this command to be harmonious or same-minded apart from thinking the way Christ thinks. And that's where our problems are at. If we don't have the word of God in us in relationship to our circumstances and situations, we will not be same-minded with one another. And that's where you're going to have conflict. It's so important that we see this first point as the foundation for the rest of these things. Guess what? You're not going to be sympathetic. You're not going to be brotherly. You're not going to be kind-hearted. You're not going to be humble in spirit if you don't have the same mind. If you don't have the same mind. We believers are to be thinking biblically. We are to have the word dwelling richly in our hearts. We are to be same-minded. Do you wonder why you don't get along with uh, other believers at times? Do you wonder why we don't get along with, uh, with those in, Christ, in the body of Christ at times? Do you wonder why there's unity lacking in the church at times? It's because Christ is not reigning in a humble heart by means of the truth Wrong thinking is reigning and sin is reigning. And therefore there is disorder and every evil thing. You see, we can function by two types of wisdom. One, the wisdom of man, which is just the way we think all the time. Or by God's wisdom in his word. And we have to deliberately renew our hearts with his word. Or we will think with man's wisdom by default. You don't even have to try. Look at uh, James chapter 3. So it's so important that Peter makes his first thing to sum up. Be same-minded. If this doesn't happen, it ain't going to happen. Right? James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior and the deeds of gentleness of wisdom. Hey, let him show by the right behavior that comes from the right wisdom. That's what he's saying. But if you have jealousy and bitter ambition, or jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be arrogant so as to lie against the truth. Hey, don't pretend. Don't lie against the truth. This wisdom is that which is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. We can function by God's wisdom. In his word, or we can function by our wisdom. And when we function by our wisdom, jealousy, selfish ambition, and every evil thing, uh, it will abound. What a joyous thing it is when believers are walking in unity with like-mindedness. Not, not because they're agreeing with everybody's other's opinion, 
but they're thinking like Christ thinks, like Christ thinks because of the word. The foundation for what Peter is speaking of here is right thinking, right thinking. There's no way you're ever going to be able to respond and be used and blessed of God in, in this life unless you're thinking rightly, unless you're thinking rightly. And that's going to manifest first and foremost in your relationship with people around you. Notice the second one here back in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. To sum up, or finally, let all be harmonious or like-minded. Look at the next one, sympathetic, sympathetic. You see, these people were suffering. They were suffering greatly. The suffering we have isn't very much these days, by the way. Now, there's some physical suffering that is very bad. There's some, some isolated pockets of people suffering for Christ. But by and large, we're not suffering that much. But they were suffering. And there was a, literally a fiery ordeal to come upon them very, very soon. And he says here that they are to be sympathetic. We are to sympathize with one another. We're to sympathize. It doesn't mean allow sin. It means sympathize. The term soon, patheo, is the Greek term. Soon meaning with, patheo meaning suffering. Suffer with. Enter into with that person in their suffering emotionally. There's a compassion, there's a sympathy from the heart to what someone is going through in Christ. And primarily here the context is suffering for doing what is right. There should be a sympathy in the body of Christ for one another as we suffer for doing what is right. You see, we have a sympathetic high priest that, can, that cannot identify. He, he can identify with our weaknesses, yet without sin. Right? We are to sympathize. Sympathize. And it is only when the word of God is dwelling rightly in our hearts that we're going to have true Christ-like sympathy for one another. Let everything be same-minded, sympathetic. We should be sympathetic. These words should go through our hearts when we are in interactions with one another. When there starts to be an argument or whatever, we should just go back to the word, wait, where's my heart? Where's my heart? We should be sympathizing to the extent of entering into one's experience in terms of sympathizing with them. Notice the third one, the term brotherly. The term is Philadelphia. It speaks of brotherly love. It speaks of love between brothers in Christ in the context. But I believe it speaks of agape love, and I'll share why. Agape love is self-sacrificial love that comes from God alone. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Whenever you see this term brotherly love in the context of the body, it's speaking really of God's love through us with brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Now as to the Philadelphia, or Philadelphia, love of the brethren, that's the word, same word as ours, you have no need for anyone to write you. You don't need any instruction on this. For you yourselves are taught by God to agape, to love one another. God, by his spirit, through his word, works in our hearts to bring about a love for the body of Christ. You don't need anyone to teach you about brotherly love. But guess what? We need to be reminded, don't we? We need to be reminded because we so easily become selfish and self-centered. And there's no love in selfishness and self-centeredness. We know from 1 John chapter 5 that our love for one another in the body of Christ is manifest in obeying the Lord. 
in relationship to one another, obeying his commands to us. So he says here, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly. We need to have a yieldedness to Christ that we would love one another, that we would see others as more important than ourselves. This is the way it should be in our relationships with one another. We need to rememberize these things. Harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly. This should be the way we are. And when we're not, we need to confess it. And God is so good, he forgives us. Truly confess and repent, turn, you're forgiven, and move on, and move on. Notice the third, our fourth attitude here, kind-hearted. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly. That's speaking of love in this context. Some translations actually add love in there. Uh, Kind-hearted, kind-hearted. The term translated tender-hearted in some other places comes from the Greek word that speaks of one's inner organs in a sense. And, and, and having this, this, this inner organs, this compassion, it's from the inside. There's a genuine compassion on the inside towards others. Turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. We see this same word in the context of God's gracious forgiveness of us and how we should forgive others. This is the way we should function. This is the way our heart should be. We shouldn't be holding on to anything. We shouldn't be holding our ground, holding on to stuff. Yet that's not going to be in contradiction with obeying God's word in relationship to the breadth and width of his scriptures. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all, not some, but all, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander away be put away from you along with all malice. Put it aside confess it repent renew your minds and in contrast do what be kind to one another here's our word tender hearted it's a soft heart towards one another there's a tenderness there's an internal tenderness in the body of christ if we aren't living this way how are we going to walk rightly in those suffering situations that come to us we need to be right with the lord tender hearted notice what he says Tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Just as, and as God in Christ has forgiven you, there's a tenderheartedness that doesn't hold two people to account. But it also, there's an obedience. Obviously, if someone is caught up in sin and we need to obey God's word or whatever it might be, but there's a tenderheartedness just letting it go. There's no holding on because I'm not thinking of myself. You see, Christ didn't think of himself. He did it for us. Notice what the passage says. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, this is the mind of Christ, be imitators of God as beloved children and what? Walk in love, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, offering and, uh, as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. No hard hearts towards anybody in the body of Christ. Now, sometimes there are situations where we need to be cautious and careful. There are some passages that tell us to turn away and reject. That's not mean you have a hard heart. That means you're going to obey God so that God might work on those people's hearts. The reality is no hard hearts towards anybody. Tenderhearted. Tenderhearted. And notice the last one here, humble in spirit. It's uh, appropriate that we have this last one, tapeno phrones, lowly, low in uh, thinking, low in thinking. 
It speaks of having a humble mind. The New King James translates it's courteous because of a textual issue, but if you look in your notes, they will say humble or humility there also. There, they will address that. So what does this mean? It is an attitude of heart that sees one truly rightly before the Lord. Humility is an attitude that sees yourself rightly before the Lord. You see, there is a lowly of mind there is no exaltation of self we are nothing we are nothing it's an attitude that sees oneself rightly totally dependent on the lord nothing that we do apart from christ brings about anything it is not a self-elevation or a self-lowering but it is an understanding of oneself rightly which will bring us low this word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's in contrast with pride. Turn to Proverbs 29, 23. For some of you may or may not know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but a few hundred years before Christ, there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and that's the Septuagint. Some of that is even quoted in the New Testament. And so in that, we have uh, some portions, and we have it in Greek. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will attain honor. That's actually the term humble spirit is the same exact word. You see, pride is the opposite of a humble spirit. If we accredit to ourselves anything, if we elevate ourselves above anyone or anything, we are not lowly in spirit. We need to see ourselves rightly. And it is pride at the root of much of our sin or most of our sin or all of our sin. We think we deserve something, so we react or whatever it might be. We elevate ourselves rather than God and his will in our lives. Peter will say later on in 1 Peter that we are to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and let him exalt us at the proper time, casting all our cares upon him, for he cares for you, chapter 5. We are to have the mindset of humility as exhibited in Christ. Turn back to Philippians chapter 2. So when you think about it in your interactions with believers, not mechanically, but let God's work. Same-minded, sympathetic, right? Brotherly love. Um, We have these wonderful, tender-hearted and lowly in mind. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but what? with humility of mind, seeing yourself rightly. Regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind, literally, in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality of God a thing to be grasped. This is amazing. God in flesh humbled himself. He did not regard equality to be grasped, but he entrusted himself to the Father. We need to entrust ourselves and rely on him completely. If you're not trusting in Jesus, you're not humble. I'll tell you that right now. And he says here, Did not regard equality of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. Here you go. He humbled himself by what? Becoming obedient to the point of death. You want to be lowly in mind? It's not simply lowering yourself in your own mind. It's seeing yourself rightly before God and thus obeying the God who is sovereign over you. 
right? So then we have these statements here. Let me ask you, if you were to lay this verse across your heart, how are you doing? You know, we all fail and we need to confess. Lord, I failed. I, I, when, when we catch ourselves failing in this and sinning, we need to confess and get right with the Lord. Lord God, enable me to be this way. Use your word to change the way I think concerning myself, concerning you, and concerning the body of Christ. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. That's the way it should be. How is it in your lives, brothers and sisters? Is there any unforgiveness? Is there any hardness of heart? Is there any lack of love? Is there any lack of sympathy? Are we thinking the same? Are we seeing ourselves rightly? That's what we should be doing. You see, if we don't do this, there's no way we're going to have a right heart towards those who persecute us. If we can't have a right heart towards those God has saved, how are we going to have a right heart towards those who are treating us with evil, right? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So with that in mind, we need to respond rightly to those who are believers. And notice we also are to respond rightly or have the right attitude to believers and respond rightly now to those who are persecuting. Look back in our passage in uh, chapter 3, verse 8 in 1 Peter. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in in spirit. And then notice this, it continues, but it changes, not returning evil for evil. And I believe Peter is allowing this to be connected because he doesn't want us to think this is a new section now speaking of believers. This section is continuing what he has spoken of before concerning suffering for doing what is right, not returning evil evil for evil or insult for insult but giving a blessing instead verse 8 is speaking of the hard attitude of believers verse 9 and and although we should never return evil for evil we'll see in a minute to anybody which includes believers here this is specifically speaking of those in context who are the gentiles who don't know god who are persecuting them You know, we could certainly have persecution through believers or those of a said faith. Paul talked about that. That's possible. You know, we can have that. And we're to have the right heart in obedience to God's word and how we relate to everybody, right? We're to have the mind of Christ. But here, primarily in this passage and in this book, it is non-believers persecuting believers. Persecuting believers. So he says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. In the context of suffering under the Roman government, which they would suffer greatly in a little bit. In the context of suffering under ungodly, harsh masters. In the context of a marriage with an unbeliever in those situations. How are we to respond in word and deed? How are we to respond in a situation where non-believers do evil to us? When non-believers insult us or threaten us? How are we to respond with the with right heart, first of all, towards our brothers and sisters. But look at, notice, first of all, he says, not returning evil for evil. Pretty easy statement. Don't take your own revenge. Don't do evil because someone did evil to you. Yes, what someone did was wrong. It is evil. Saying it right here, not returning evil for evil. What was happened to you was evil. When an unbelieving government does evil to you, when a boss does evil towards you, when an unbelieving spouse does evil to you, don't return it. And we'll see when anyone does evil to you, don't return it. 
Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. You see, because through our behavior, we are actually then going to bless those instead who are unsaved, as we'll see, and it is an evidence that God's blessing is upon us. It's upon us. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. Don't do it. Someone treats you wrong, do not repay evil for evil. But always seek after that which is good for one another, believers, and for all men. That's everyone. Do what is good. Do what is good. And we'll see God's word reveals what is good. What is good. It's when the manifestation of the character of Christ is in us. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. You know, we need to entrust ourselves to the one who judges righteously when we are treated with evil. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Never, never, if you do so, you're sinning. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never. Someone says something to you that offends you. Someone says something that hurts you. Maybe it's a close relationship, marriage relationship. You're tempted to say something back. Never. Never return evil for evil. Never do it. But always seek after, excuse me, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Do what is right. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, Now you may not be able to because of them, but as far as it depends with you. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay it, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry... Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's quoting Proverbs. Those personal enemies that attack you, do what is right. Now, that's not going to contradict God's word if there are portions that say we are to not associate whatever that will be. But we see here, we are to respond in a right way that would bring them to shame, as we'll see in First Peter, that they might be saved that they might receive a blessing. That's what they need. The non-believer doesn't need to have his, his evil repaid. At this point, he needs to be saved. He needs to be saved. And we are here for one purpose. We are manifesting Christ on this earth until he comes again. So with that in mind, we see we are never to repay evil for evil. If you have done so and you haven't confessed it, confess it. I guarantee you got strife in those relationships. Confess it. If you have been thinking any ways that are contradictory to the word of God, confess it. Be forgiven. And never do this. Never do this. Now notice there's also the temptation to speak back in a wicked way. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. When you think of an insult, what's an insult? Someone says something that's insulting, right? Someone says something that's not true. It's made to, it's, 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 it's insulting. Don't return it. Don't snap back and say something back to them. Never do that. Never do that. Because we'll see in a moment, God is using your righteous response to bring about a change 
through, your beha- through his behavior, an opportunity for the gospel that one might be saved. Now, certainly with believers, we should never do this. How much more with those who don't know Christ? We are never to do so. Look back in 1 Peter chapter 2. We see the Lord, the Lord Jesus' response, his, his example, excuse me. 1 Peter 2.20. For what credit is there if when you sin you have been treated harshly, you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered. This is the context, First Peter, for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. Notice what he said. Who committed no sin. He didn't return evil for evil. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself. Lord God, I trust you. I trust you to give me the ability to say the right thing. I trust you're working behind the scenes in this. I trust you to help me, Lord God, to respond rightly. And we pray for our enemies. Please save them, Lord God. Open a door for salvation. Open a door for them to see your work in me and call upon your name. Notice we see that. Don't react sinfully in word or deed back in chapter chapter 3. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but now a contrast. But giving a blessing instead. Now it's interesting, there are some who say giving a blessing would be like this. Someone says, well, you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel. And you say, bless you, my friend. You know, and that's not what it's talking about. You know, you're a, you're a, you're a bad guy, whatever. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May his shine upon you. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about giving some canned blessing He's talking about speech that, that brings forth that blessing, as we'll see. Right speech. And we're going to see in the context, very clearly, the context points to when that opportunity arises to give a reason why you have hope. You want to bless somebody? Bless them with the truth of the gospel, as we'll see when God opens the door. Don't respond and react in the situations. I don't believe this is the verbal... A response of just sharing some blessing in general. And I believe, as, as almost every single other commentator believes, that this is the verbal blessing of salvation when God opens the door in context. Let me remind you, remind you of the context. Look back again at chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among Gentiles. Don't revile and return. Don't do, return evil for evil, Right? So that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may account on your good deeds, account on account of your good deeds as they observe them. Glorify God in the day of visitation. Go to chapter 3. This is just right after what we're seeing today. Chapter 3, verse 13. And who is there to harm you if you prove us for doing what is good? God's going to protect you. His blessing's on you, right? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, 3.14, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But instead of that, do this. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready, this is with your mouth, to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so in the very thing you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ also in Christ may be put to shame." There would be hot coals on their head. They would be ashamed that they might see their sin and say, why do you have hope? Bless them. I have hope because of what Jesus Christ did for me. 
I was just like you. And Jesus Christ convicted my heart of my sin. He revealed the truth that he died for me on the cross and he rose from the dead and that whoever will call upon his name will be saved. And you can be saved right now. And you can have hope. You see, we are to, instead of reviling, we are to bless instead. Do you think anybody you return evil for evil or threaten back is going to want to hear the gospel when from you? You think so? I doubt it. I doubt it. The blessing we are to speak to non-believers who do evil towards us and insult us, I believe, is the core in the gospel. Now, certainly we are to speak righteously. We are to speak kindly. You know, I'm, I'm praying for you. You know, whatever it might be, we are to speak righteously. But also, we're not just to indiscriminately throw the gospel down to anybody. Someone says, you're, you do, you're the, you're, gives a big insult. You say, let me share that Jesus Christ died for this. You, know, and that's, you see, we're not to cast our pearls before swine. God opens the door when he opens it because he shames them. They observe your good behavior in Christ. And notice, uh, speaking of behavior, we see mentioned in verses 10 to 12 a quote from Psalm 32, 34. Excuse me, And we have some specific responses here that actually add to what we're being told here. I'm going to skip the end of verse 9 and we'll come back to that. And let's look at verse 10 and 11 here, okay? Notice in verse 10, he says, for. You could say, you could say uh, literally because. He says, and it's a quote of Psalm 34, which was read earlier. Let him who means to love life and see good days. Let him who wants to live the good life in Christ. What is he to do? Refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Don't react with your words. And let him do what? Turn away from evil. By the way, you've got to turn away from it. We get tempted to respond and react in a sinful way. Turn in Christ. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. He's explaining the way we should do things. And he's quoting Psalm 34. You want to live the good life? Let him who means to love good life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Again, quoting Psalm 34 in verses 10 to 12. And it is really an explanation, as we will see, of what has been said. If you turn away and do from evil and do good, you don't react, you don't take personal revenge, you turn away, do good, and bless instead the situation opens a greater potential in the context of God's sovereignty to share the gospel of Christ. We need to be renewing our minds. We need to have the same mind towards one another, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, tender, lowly in spirit. And we need to be never returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. So then, do you want to live a good life? Seen so far, we need to live according to biblical knowledge, letting God's word work in our hearts towards believers. And we need to then respond rightly in our behavior towards those who are persecuting us with our deeds and our words. And notice, lastly, we're going to see that this results in God's direct blessing on our lives right now. 
To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil but, or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Very interesting statement here, and you've got to kind of work through it to see what it, what's going on here. So instead of returning evil for evil, insult for insult, we give a blessing instead. And then he says, for you were called for this very purpose. It points back grammatically, you were called to respond rightly to suffering and bless people. That's what he's saying. That's what Jesus did. Instead of responding, he entrusted himself to the Father, and we are blessed through his obedience by the salvation he brought forth. In the same way, we are to follow in his footsteps. You've been called for this. The for, or because, you can say literally because, because you were called for this very purpose, or unto this, which is grammatically back to giving a blessing, in order that something else might happen, that you might inherit a blessing. You see, when we walk according to our calling, we are blessed. We are blessed. We walk according to our calling, we are blessed. We have been called to follow in the footsteps of Christ, chapter chapter 2. We've been called to not respond when we suffer for doing what is right. We've been called to endure and entrust ourselves to the one who judges righteously. We've been called unto this, that we might, through our behavior, as God works in us, bless those who don't know Christ. We've got to think that way when bad stuff comes upon us through nonbelievers. We've been called unto this. We've been called unto this. And guess what? For the purpose, that, end of verse 9, you might inherit a blessing. You see, when we suffer for doing what is right, God's blessing is upon us. We saw that we are blessed. We saw it in First Peter chapter 2 concerning his, his favor upon us. We see it in First Peter chapter 3 that we are blessed. We are blessed. You, you see, look again at this. Um, at uh, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, what does it say? You are blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed. Look again at chapter 4, verse 13. But to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So at the revelation of his glory, you might rejoice with exaltation. If you are what? Reviled for the name of Christ. You're doing the right thing in Christ. You're trusting him and you are reviled. What does he say? You're blessed. We've been called to follow Jesus in his footsteps in obedience that we might walk in the inherited blessing we have in a true relationship with him. You are blessed. You are blessed. And at this point, Peter concludes by explaining with Psalm 34. And I've already shared the first two verses of it, and I'll share the last part as we go through it. He's going to explain with Psalm 34. And as we looked at Psalm 34, as it was read earlier, Psalm 34 is written to believers who are blessing the Lord, they're magnifying His name, who are fearing Him, who are taking refuge in Him, who are humble in spirit. They will hear and exalt Him. It's speaking to believers that are relying on the Lord, who want to learn the fear of the Lord. He says, refrain your tongue from evil, verse 11, and your lips from speaking guile. Let, let him who loves means to love life and see good days. Refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking guile. Again, quote from Psalm 34, verse 11, now in our passage. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. We looked at that. And notice this, there's an explanation. 
Why? This is the blessing of God. God's attentiveness towards you. Four, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Those are those who are saved. His eyes are upon you. He is looking out for you. And his ears attend to your prayer. You're blessed. When you obey the Lord, you are blessed. It's not obey to get blessed. It's because of Christ in us and a renewed heart and mind. As we trust him, we obey him. There's God's blessing on our lives. We're walking with the Lord. And his ears attend to their prayer. But yet the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see, if you desire life and length of days that you may see good, then you're going to trust the Lord and obey him. You're going to trust him and obey him. In relationship to believers and in relationship to those who cause you to suffer in the world. Brother and sister, do you want to live the good life? A life characterized by God's blessing upon your life, his eyes upon you, his ears attentive to your prayer. We know back in chapter 3, verse 7, that when husbands, believing husbands are not living according to understanding, prayers are hindered. There's no blessing in that. Do you want to live with his blessing upon you? Walk rightly with the Lord. I want to read some final passages here. Psalm 34, verse 17, I'll just read it for you. The righteous cry and the Lord hears. And the Lord delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. It's his blessing upon you. You're thinking rightly. You're seeing yourself rightly. If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. If you are revolved in the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. You've got God's interaction in your life. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You want to live the good life? Take refuge in him. Trust him and obey him. So how can we do this? Let God's word direct our hearts and actions. We should be same-minded We should be sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, lowly in mind towards one another. We should respond rightly as we entrust ourselves to Christ, to those who persecute us, blessing them and knowing that his blessing when we suffer is upon us. Want to live the good life? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, and we just acknowledge how short we fall at times. Lord, I pray that we, those here who are true believers, that we would really lay this verse 8 upon our hearts. Are we same-minded? Are we sympathetic? Are we exhibiting brotherly love? Are we tender-hearted? Are we lowly in mind? And if we're not, Lord God, we confess and be right with you. And we would allow your word to help us see ourselves rightly and see others rightly that we might be these and lord in relationship to suffering for those of us who suffer and will suffer true believers for doing what is right may we recognize we've been called not to respond in sin but to leave the door open for you to save those who persecute us that you might even use our behavior that you do through us as a venue 
to open a door for your gospel. And Father, may we realize that when we obey you, no matter how hard things are, no matter how difficult they become, we are blessed. Because you are towards us and your ears attend to our prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name.